Welcome to Listener, a crew podcast. I'm your host, Sam Holland. Today's guest is Lisa Brockman. Lisa is on staff with Crew, and she's also a spiritual director. She just wrote a book called Out of Zion, Meeting Jesus in the Shadow of the Mormon Temple. Enjoy the show. Okay, so Lisa, you recently wrote a book called Out of Zion, Meeting Jesus in the Shadow of the Mormon Temple. I loved this book. I couldn't put it down. I read it in one day. It's a total page turner. And I just want you to share with us, why did you write this book? Well, thanks for having me, for one. I would never have initiated this project on my own. I was sharing my testimony at a church family camp, and a man approached me afterwards. It was just like a little 15-minute story of my story. And as this man approached me, I knew his name, Robert Wolgamuth, but I didn't know what he did. Everybody knew who this man was at our church, and everybody but me, I think, knows what Robert Wolgamuth does. And so he approached me and started asking me unique questions after I shared my story. One was, what book would you put in the hands of somebody who has a neighbor who's a Mormon? And I just sat there silent, and I just said, I can't think of one. And he asked me a few more questions that people don't ask me after I share my testimony. And then one question led to another, and he said, Lisa, have you ever thought about writing your story? And I felt like he'd punched me in the gut. (laughs) And my family, all but one brother, is still Mormon and very devout LDS. And I... The Mormon Church last year put out a public um, a statement that they don't want to be referred to as Mormons anymore and LDS, but I'm referring to them as Mormons, not intending any disrespect. But it's a lot easier to say Mormon than the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints. So I just want to preface it with that. So. asked me if I wanted to write my story, and I felt like I was going to throw up. And I sat there with Robert for about 15 minutes as he spoke life into me, and he said, Lisa, you need to write your story. Nobody's sharing your story like you're sharing your story, or sharing the Mormon story like you are. That there was a compassion that laced my story that he wasn't accustomed to hearing or reading in post-Mormon literature. So we talked on the phone and about a week later entered into a contract. And our family had just adopted two older kids from Ethiopia, sisters, and they turned eight and 10 right after we got them. So that was a year earlier and our lives were upside down. The hinges had come off our family in so many ways. We were all suffering from secondhand trauma. And I just thought, this is the craziest timing God. Not in a million years would I have ever dreamt about writing my story when my parents are living. And our lives are upside down. I can't fathom the emotional energy to even go into this project. But I learned in that week that Robert Wolgamuth was one of the top um, literary agents in the Christian publishing world. And he had been the CEO of Thomas Nelson Publishers for 10 years. And since then, I've also learned that he's not an agent that people can just get into. So the whole thing was such a God setup that 
That is what it took for me to enter into this project, to write my story, knowing that God has initiated it. God will take care of it. I did not think I would get a publisher. It took me five years to write my proposal, publisher's proposal, which is not common. And as I like, there were years where there was grief and there was trauma and I couldn't type a word and they just waited for me. And I don't know why they waited for me. I think that Robert just forgot about me at times. And they just kept waiting. And then I'd submit a, a page of work. And they just were very affirming and very supportive. And so they just hung in there. And I, throughout the process, occasionally would think, they're going to cut me off. And this is taking so long. And I would just hear God's uh, his whispers in my soul my timing is perfect. And I, I believe that. And so that was kind of the anchor that carried me through that five years. And then I really didn't believe I'd get a publisher, a publisher because I have no public platform. I hadn't really been on social media for years. It's not my preferred place to spend my time. And I got a publisher. And so the whole thing has just been one God sighting after the next, after the next, even into the release of the book and how he has gone before me and gone before my family so kindly and tenderly to smooth the path that that this the trauma from me writing my story has brought to the family. Well, thank you for writing this book. I had mm-hmm. no idea that it was such a, I guess, such a long journey for you to write. Um, mm-hmm. Cause I remember when you adopted your girls and that was a long time ago. Yeah. Um, it's been eight years as of last uh-huh. month. So I think I'm just aware of how personal this was and is still to you. Like this is your, it's not just your story. It's, also your family's story and now and now it's in written form and it can go out to whoever wants to buy this book can can read this um what is that like to still have your family identifying as mormon your wonderful loving family who we meet in this book um except one brother what has it been like for you all as they've walked through this process with you? Yeah. It make it, they can't, but they are seeing him in you. And I think that is, I mean, 26 years of, like you said, embodying Christ is, um, and not having anyone ask for your story during that time. That is so much of the Jesus way that you, you enter, you were, have been Jesus to them and you still are, but for so many years, it was just the faithful presence is the role that you were playing. So, I just say bravo. And when I read your book, I and I know Jesus is the hero of the story. I'm not trying to make it you, but I lost you. Oh. Can't hear you. 
How about now? Oh, I can hear you. Okay. Um, there wasn't judgment in your book, Lisa. You, you did honor your family so well in your book. And your book reminded me so much of, have you read Nabil Qureshi's Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus? Yeah. So good. I know. Uh, his book, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. Um, I can't remember the, the rest of it, but basically you both came from good, loving families. And you both had someone come into your life in college and read the Bible with you. I mean, this, the similarities are striking, but real, but the narrative that both of your books destroyed for me was that religions, devout religious people in the world who aren't following Jesus necessarily are bad people or evil people. They're, they're not, they're image bearers. And so they, a lot of them love their families really well and actually want to honor God with their lives and do the best they can to do that. And so I, in your, you've alluded to this a little bit in your story and in your life, what have you found to be that major difference between religion and Jesus? Well, with Mormonism, and I think this is with all works-based religions, all I've known is a very aloof God And my God was once a man who progressed and worked his way into Godhood. He was flesh and bones. He was on a planet. We called it Kolob. And he was married to Heavenly Mother. And he was removed. And he was watching me. He was not omnipresent because he was flesh and bones. But his Holy Ghost would come. And so there was, we believed in plurality of gods. And Jesus was another God. And Jesus was a created being. He wasn't God and isn't God in Mormon orthodoxy. And so he and Lucifer are brothers. And we're all his brothers and sisters in this pre-existing world. Well, I just thought everybody believed like that. I grew up in Utah in the 80s. It was very sheltered. We were taught not to question. We weren't educated about other belief systems, which I think happens in the Christian church too. Um, People keep their kids very sheltered. And because of my story, when my daughter was 10 and said, I don't know if I believe in God, I was like, that's amazing, Madison. You're 10 and you're already questioning the existence of God. I was like, do you want me to journey with you? And she goes, nope, I have to do this myself. And I was like, okay. And I gave her, like, When Socrates Meets Jesus, which is an amazing book by Peter Kreft, who's a philosopher. It's like for college-age kids. She's like, years later, she said, I can't believe you gave me these books. I couldn't even understand. And I was like, I was just doing the best I could trying to help your journey. They worked for me in college. Um, I don't know that there's a book out there when a 10-year-old questions the existence of God. So (laughs) maybe I should learn if there is. But uh, anyway, she came around about a year later, and she's like, I believe. And she'd gone through this incredible journey. Well, when my siblings' children question the existence of God, they panic. 
And I think there's a huge difference. There's so much freedom that Christ brings. And that's what, when I encountered the love of the biblical God, that he was with me in spite of my unworthiness. He was with me because he absolutely is crazy about me and wanted to be with me all the time. So he incarnated himself. And when I was unworthy in Mormonism, I was not worthy of Heavenly Father's presence. The Holy Ghost would flee. The Holy Ghost would come when I was being worthy and living according to the laws and ordinances of the Mormon gospel. So I was in or I was out all the time. And it's who we worship filters down into our families, into how we relate to others. So our family culture was characterized with that inness and outness. And if you, like when I started partying and rebelling and consuming alcohol in high school, then I was all bad. And it was, you're all good, you're all bad. There's no place for gray when you're in these religious systems without a relational God who's entered into all the grayness and made the grayness our normal and come to the broken. And there's no place for brokenness in religion. But Jesus, the Trinitarian God, enters into brokenness. And I think that's the most radical his witness, his incarnation is the most radical difference between religion and relationship. Yeah, it's funny. Um, when I was reading your book, I was not thinking, oh, wow, this, like the culture in Lisa's Mormon upbringing was so different to me. I, I thought, oh, I've experienced those same types of religious things in different church settings throughout my life. And it's that sort of fear that can creep in where what you're talking about, are my, are my kids going to do something that's scary to me? Is um, I don't know. I guess I just have experienced the fear that... And, or the freedom from fear that Jesus brings where it's not like I don't think anything bad can happen to me or my loved ones or it's that God is the who God has shown me to be through Jesus is so big and so gracious and so loving and so present that it it supersedes the fear. He's like, you, you can even trust me with the fear and with the unknown things and with the hard things that are going to happen. I will be there and I'm, and I'm bigger and more loving and gracious than all of it. So it is this, it's like this third way of living and being yeah. that Jesus yeah. offers and the, that freedom from fear. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Perfect love casts out fear. I'm still working at getting that into my body after 29 years of walking with Jesus. I think it's just amazing how long it takes to really get that. Every day I think through that verse and where I'm challenged to live it out. I mean, me too. It's easy to just slip into fear when there's so much freedom available to us in Christ from that. Okay, so we talked about how um, it was in college that a friend started reading the Bible with you. 
and what a huge difference that made in your life. And I just know that now you've worked for crew all these years with your husband, Dennis, and your family. How has that really, that coming alive and coming to know Jesus in college drip fueled your passion for continuing with a ministry that primarily ministers to college students? Mm, I think that my passion for people to know of the radical love of the biblical God is so deeply rooted. And I have a deep passion for spiritual transformation as a result of my story. I, I was in this religion that was so externalized where it was based on all of my behaviors and my acceptance and my worthiness and love was granted based on if I was doing the right thing or not that I'm so repelled by any system or belief system that reduces God to a system of do's and don'ts and um, a moral law. And I think Western evangelicalism so much of the time reduces God to a moral law versus a vibrant life with the Trinity. And so those passions are so deeply rooted in me that and to understand what we believe. At the University of Utah, after I got involved with Crew as a college student, Friday nights we would go to a coffee house and we would talk apologetics. And that's what you do in Utah because less than 4% of Utah are biblical believing Christians. And so it's like living in the 1040 window. And when you're that much the minority, and you're up against a religious system or in the culture of a system that the beliefs are so unorthodox and they're so opposed to biblical Christianity, but they believe they've got it all. It just creates and fosters an environment where for me and for the friends that I had, we just wanted to be able to articulate our faith very clearly in the culture. So I think all of that has formed me into a woman that is very passionate about others, knowing this God, being introduced to this God, and then entering into a life yoked to Jesus and his light and easy yoke, because I know what life is like not being yoked to that Jesus. And I think it's a long journey uh, in, um, toward transformation, but so I think my heart for college students is it's such a pivotal time where they can actually break away from the influence of their parents and begin to start questioning. And whether they're a Christian family or whatever their faith system, I hope that they go through that questioning and begin to let the quarter drop from their head to their heart, wrestle and digest and own their faith. So I think I have a huge passion for women, too, because women were so minimized and marginalized in my faith system. So it, it isn't limited to college students, but definitely it's alive to college students, as well as a huge heart for women to become who God designed them to be as image bearers. And men, too. Working under Larry Crabb, getting my spiritual direction certificate for years, you can't not have a passion for people living out their biblical design. I love that you brought up just women being having the freedom to, you know, be who God's called them to be. 
Was there a part in your book? Okay, you're going to have to correct me if I get this wrong. I know that you are an elder in your church or you were an elder in your church at one point. And when that happened, was it, wasn't it your dad who affirmed that in you or a family well, member? My dad, I think my dad was a little bit proud of me because when I told my parents, I was terrified because this is just sacrilege to them. Like women have no authority in the Mormon church. According to Mormon doctrine, men hold the keys to the priesthood and Peter passed down the priesthood to Joseph Smith in a vision, and then Joseph passes it down to other prophets, and then it filters down into the men in the church if they're worthy. Women have no authority. They can never hold the priesthood. And when boys are 12 years old, they first get the priesthood. So a 12-year-old boy has more authority than his mother or his sisters. So anyway, when I became an elder, like only men are elders in the church, and... I told my parents, and it's not like I was on the horn right away. Guess what, Mom and Dad? I'm going to be an elder. The thing is, is when you're, like, I'm in the Presbyterian tradition right now, elderhood is a very high office. In the Mormon church, becoming an elder isn't as esteemed. It's highly esteemed. Like, boys, when they go on their missions, that's when they become elders. So it's highly esteemed, but... There's such a difference in what's required to hold that office. And so anyway, but yeah, my dad was surprisingly, I think, proud of me and proud of his daughter. And so I, I love how my dad is able to just keep embracing me. Like my parents really are deep lovers. My mom told me a few years ago, Lisa, we couldn't do what they were telling us to do which she was alluding to cutting me off. She's, and I just think that characterizes my parents. They've just stuck in there as hard as it's been for them. And they just keep loving me back. And that comes at a very high cost for them, doesn't it? According to yes. Mormon doctrine? Yes. Continuing to have a relationship with you, they could be giving up some sort of status in the afterlife or they you know when they when they use I think they've changed it this year but to in order to get the temple recommend which is your um pass to get into the Mormon temple which you can't get to eternal life in the highest heaven where the father and the son reside unless you are a temple married Mormon and so Every three years, you need to go through an interview with your stake president, they're called, to renew that temple recommend. And one of the questions they would ask is, do you associate with apostates in some version? I don't know the exact wording. And um, my parents would have to say yes. And so it's a very shame-inducing um, culture. And somehow they got their recommend, but maybe it's because I'm not an apostate who is actually living out in opposition to the church, which now I am that apostate. So I don't know, but I think they've, I've heard since Christmas that they've redone the questions. The Mormon church is working really hard to somehow stay afloat with all the scandal, with all the history that's being exposed now with their hundred billion dollar fund that they've been 
building for years with people's tithes. I mean, there's just so much scandal. So they're working really hard to mainstream themselves. Unfortunately, many religions have these scandals, right? Yep. Not just the Mormon church. Mm-hmm. Um, Lisa, tell us about your relationship with your neighbor, Tiffany. I know she's moved back to Utah. I don't know when, what year that happened or if you're still in contact with her, but I just think about your agent friend who said, hey, what book would you give someone with a Mormon neighbor? And it just seems so fitting to your relationship with Tiffany. Yeah. Well, Tiffany moved into our neighborhood one month. It was the month I started writing my manuscript. I just received the offer from Harvest House two weeks earlier, and my daughter, Camise, came home from school one day and said, there's a Utah family who moved in down the street. And I just thought, what are the odds? And I said, I'm sure they're Mormons. And I've never had a Mormon neighbor here in Florida. And so I go down there and almost run Tiffany over with my big old excursion. And I was like, hey, are you the Utah family? And she said, yes. And immediately we were like sisters. And I asked her to come for lunch. And I just thought, you know, I'm going to love on this woman like I have my family and bring Jesus to her through my body. And I mean, I talk about Jesus all the time, so I'm not hindered that way. But I'm thinking it's just going to be one of those relationships. So she came, she came for lunch and she walked in my door and Tiffany was just an open book. She was an uncommon Mormon woman. And so she just starts sharing the struggles they're having and transitioning to Orlando from Utah. And she's sharing about her kids and different struggles they're having. And then about five minutes in, she said, Lisa, what's your story? you're from Utah. Are you from a Mormon family? And I said, yeah, I am. I was raised fifth generation, sixth generation Mormon. And she said, tell me your story. Well, I've never had a Mormon ask me to share my story. So I began my story. And by the time I was five months into my, or five minutes into my story, it was at the point where Gary, my boyfriend in college started challenging me. How do you know the church is true? And my, my, beginning my search and Tiffany stopped me and she's in tears said I cannot believe you're my neighbor she said a year ago I began to read what are called the gospel doctrine essays and that the Mormon church was required to put them on their website through a settlement they had and they've been hiding these documents for years and it talks about joseph smith's practice of polyandry it exposes his character his very poor character and sending men on missions overseas and then taking their wives and marrying them in the mormon temple it talks about how there's no historicity for mormonism there's all these essays that are very exposing and she didn't want to read them initially but her husband had been planting seeds just start reading these the and the brethren they're called the brethren are the church leaders the prophets the apostles they were encouraging their members to read them get familiar with them so that they could defend the church well tiffany read them and her world came unraveled and it was like one thread that unraveled her soul and she 
could not reconcile that the prophet who she found to be so beloved and found in the Mormon church had the practices that he had and she could not believe that a true prophet would have those practices. So that was where Tiffany was when she was on my back porch for the first time, completely unraveled. So she just said, I cannot believe you're my neighbor. Here's my story. And she was filled with shame, believing that God, she wasn't worthy of his love. So he'd abandoned her. And I just got to begin that day speaking truth into her. And over the next year, we had a year together and we would go on walks and we would have conversations randomly through the week. And I would just get to speak what's true into her. And God moved her to the biblical Jesus in that year. And then they ended up moving back to Utah. And um, so yeah, we're still in touch. She'll always be a sister to me. It's so painful that she's gone, but she really believes we both know God took them back to Utah for a purpose. And so she's still attending the Mormon church there, but doesn't believe it's true. It's just a long journey out of Mormonism and her kids are, it's just finding how are your kids going to be safe, not um, rejected. And so they're living in that tension, but it was incredible because I got to a place where I'd written the first two thirds of my book and I was going to go into the third part, which is comparing the biblical and Mormon plans of salvation. And I didn't have a vision for keeping it in narrative. And I knew I really need to keep this in narrative. So I was in a bit of a crisis. I was like, I don't know how to do this. And Tiffany said, why don't you just share our story? And I, I'm just blown away at God's, again, his care and provision, both in Tiffany's life that he brought me to Tiffany to share with her who he really is and wooed her to him through me. And then he brought Tiffany to me to, I mean, out of Zion wouldn't be out of Zion without Tiffany's story in there. So it really was an incredible sovereign act of love. One of the best things about your book is that you weave um, a lot of truths about Jesus in with really great storytelling about your life. And one of the moments that just stood out to me, I can't stop thinking about it, is how, correct me if I get this wrong again, I think it was your brother at your wedding, after your wedding, said to you something like, Lisa, I felt God's spirit at your wedding. Mm -hmm. And I just thought, Lisa, what do you do with that when, when those kind of moments happen? I mean, that moment was so profound because Mormons only believe that they can feel God's spirit or the Holy Ghost in their church buildings and in their Mormon settings. And so... God absolutely blew my family's categories that day. They're in a Presbyterian church, which is sacrilege. Joseph Smith, one of his parents was Presbyterian. And when he had his first vision, he says that God told him 
don't join any of these sects. They're all, their creeds are all an abomination to the Lord. And so my church was an abomination. The pastor who married us was abiding by creeds that are abomination. And my, and God showed up and let my family feel his spirit, which is their frequency for truth. And so I just wanted to scream at the top of my lungs, but I contained myself. But I just wanted to scream, hallelujah. I love this God who comes to us in the frequency we can hear him. And that's their frequency. And a lot of, in that era especially, I think the evangelicalism I was involved with wasn't really valuing feelings in worship. Like that was, it's just not the first thing. And I'm not saying it is. I don't believe it's a plumb line for truth, but it is for a Mormon. So I just think I just was stunned and yeah, I wanted to scream at the top of my lungs, but mm-hmm. I didn't. Mm-hmm. I just was curious. Tell me about that. Yeah. It's amazing. It reminds me of when um, Nabil's, Nab- God, Jesus reveals himself to Nab- Nabil through dreams and his mom, a devout Muslim, interprets his dreams for him through her dream book these three yeah. dreams because that's so amazing that's Jesus comes to us in the language that we understand in our culture mm-hmm. it's beautiful yeah. well i i guess i love the parts about you and your family the most i want to circle back to your mom and just ask has she read your book she has not but after i got back after i returned from that october visit when she was so traumatized and she was working so hard to be supportive and stay in there. But when I, here's, here's what it was like. The moment I gave them my book, I read to them my blog post I'd written about the last thing I'd written in my manuscript before I submitted it. And it was the dedication. And I didn't say who it was dedicated to in that blog post. So I'm just crying reading to them that blog post. And then I read them my dedication and dedicated it to them. And my mom's weeping and my dad's just sitting on the couch. And I said, well, this isn't the coffee table book you've dreamt of all your lives, but here's my story. And my dad took the book and my mom came up to me and wrapped her arms around me and then failed dead weight and wailed like somebody died. It was like the deepest grief, deep, I mean, groans that I probably have never heard before. And I held her in the family room for five minutes, just stood there while she wailed from her depths. And I just said, let it out, mom. (laughs) And I just held that space with her while my dad is looking at the cover of my book, which has pictures of me on it. And he's like, oh, I think you're in second grade in that picture. And oh, I think, oh, that's when you were probably six years old. So I'm just sitting there thinking we're all doing the best we can. This is so messy. And this is, I'm just proud of us all for just doing the best we can in this space. (laughs) And so when I left Utah, she was still very traumatized. She, I get a text message from her probably five days after I returned home. My mom is 78 years old. She said, call me, I have news for you. So I'm trembling inside thinking, what is it now? I'm kind of freaked out. And 
She said, I just wanted to let you know, I have hired a a life coach who's a counselor to coach me right now through all my emotions because I don't want them to control me like they did when you left Mormonism. So I'm determined to process these emotions, work through my fear, so I can read your story because I want to read your story. And so my mom, I just think, what an amazing woman. And she said, and then I'm going to join group therapy, (laughs) but I'm going to be with women in their 50s because she doesn't have clients in their 70s. And I just, I'm in awe. She is such a brave soul. So she's just seemed pretty at rest in my presence ever since then. And my daughter was married in December, and I think that created a soft space to play together in between October and Christmas. All my sisters came and my parents, and we just had a weekend of total play. So I think that was a grace. And then at Christmas, she just seemed very free. But my mom and I have the kind of relationship where I've really moved toward her with grace and truth over the years. So there's a trust. Like, she she knows I'm going to be honest with her, but she knows that it will always be, pat, kept, like, padded in grace and couched in grace. So I think it's, it's just created these um, pathways for honesty that are pretty unique with her. Um, so she's... I mean, she's being a champ. So no, I don't think she's read it yet. But my dad started reading it when I was home at Christmas, and I just thought, this is so awkward. <laughs> Can you wait till I'm not in the same space with you? Mm-hmm. It's just, just so exposing. <laughs> yeah. I have a real soft spot for your parents, and I think just a lot of empathy because our kids are so precious to us, you know? Yes. And they've yes. fought for their relationship with you and really have tried so hard to love you so well. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. I love that that was, that came through because that was my hope that people would want to honor and respect and have compassion for my parents. Absolutely came through. Good. Well, Lisa, um, one way that I like to end the show, and this is a little more lighthearted, is um, playing I Can't Guess Your Enneagram. I don't know how you feel about the Enneagram. I or love the <laughs> I love the Enneagram, too, and I love... You're not supposed to type other people, so I just try to usually type movie characters or, you know, people that aren't real. It helps me understand stories, yeah. but... Um, I do like to play I can't guess your Enneagram because usually I can't guess it, but I'm always trying to. But it's it's like almost impossible unless you know someone very, very deeply. Yes. Yes. So do you want to play this with me? I do want to play. How do you play? Well, I'm going to guess what you are and you're going to tell me if I'm right or not. <laughs> <laughs> Only if I get to turn the table on you. Yeah, you can do that too. I'm guessing with your spiritual direction and all that, you, you might be a better guesser, but we'll see. We'll see. I don't know. It's hard to know. I don't know your motivation. I know. It's very hard to know. Um, okay, so here we go. This is me guessing your Enneagram. Do you get to ask questions or you just say a number? No, if I could ask you, I feel like if we could ask questions, we could figure it out. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm going to guess you're a three. No. 
Why did you think three? I think I thought three because I feel like you could really be in the heart triad. Mm. Two, three, or four. Mm -hmm. And I learned so much about your athletic competitive nature in your book and that's yeah. I think with the three I thought oh. oh yeah well I was a perfectionistic athlete so what would that lead you to <sighs> I just don't think you could be a one I mean it's crossed I my am. mind you are <laughs> wow okay see can't guess it. Can't. The two wings. Okay, okay. So that's. But I love that you said that. Why did you say I don't think it could be a one? I have a lot of close relationships that are ones, and um, I guess that's why. I guess I'm comparing you to other ones, and I shouldn't do that because everyone is a different human being. I don't have a good yeah, reason. I think the greatest compliment I received this year, I had some 20-somethings from church over for dinner, these young women, and one of them said, are you a seven? And I was like, yes! <laughs> <laughs> That's right, go in security. And I feel like I've worked through my whole adult life moving toward play in the world yeah. and moving toward embracing all of the mystery and the gray. So that was, I was like, that's the best compliment you could have given me. Well, just so you know, that was my next guess was seven. Oh, that's awesome! I was like, three or seven. Got to be a three or a seven. I, um, yeah, total perfectionist. When I, when I learned about the Enneagram, it's only been three years ago, probably. One thing I saw from my story is that I was that striving child who went to the party girl, total seven behavior um, throughout high school. But it was that legalistic background was so hard on my soul and so brought so much death that I swung to licentiousness and I broke that pattern that could have controlled me throughout my entire adult life, being right and basing my goodness on being right and and, um, I was totally wrong according to my doctrine and culture I was bad I was wrong I was the stain but that's where I was finding freedom from the law so it led me to embrace all the darkness in me and not feel shame over it because I couldn't anymore Mm -hmm. I had no capacity to hold shame in my story anymore so I shut it down So, yeah, I just am so grateful that my story led me into that space where I was really dark and bad and evil based on all the standards before me, Hmm. and I survived that. And so, yeah, I'm grateful. But that perfectionism and that inner critic is very present with me. Mm -hmm. The inner critic is a horrible companion. I've (laughs) heard that. director, she talked, I was telling her in the I was probably four months into writing my book and my inner critic was, there was so much shame as I seeped in my story once again, alongside researching Mormon theology. It's like the shame was off the charts. And first she asked me, 
how do you process shame in your body when I told her I was watching Suits like three episodes every night and I'm not much of a TV watcher and I'm like I know I'm running but I just I have to like I can't be in my body anymore and she said how do you she said I have no problem with Suits but how do you process shame in your body and I just was stopped in my tracks and I realized I want to escape my body I can't be in my body anymore and so I was in that space and she, um, oh, and I said, I just want to crucify my inner critic. I can't stand it. I can hardly bear it. And she said, Lisa, your inner critic is, is what makes you the writer that you are. Hmm. So she said, you just need to tell that inner critic to go to her room with the Holy Spirit. And if she can't get it under control and come back with some positive spin on things, send the Holy Spirit back. <laughs> like, oh, that was a great practice for me. And I still mm-hmm. do it all the time. Mm-hmm. So, yes, one with the two wings. Got it. I can see it now. So I have no idea what you are. Um... Well, when I was with you in the moms, when we were on that moms committee together, you seemed very laid back, very calm. Nine? I'm not a nine. Or a two? Not a two. I can't guess. I know. Isn't it hard to guess? Well, I'm a four. Oh, you are. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And really, (laughs) when you're describing how you become disembodied when you're stressed, like you want to escape your body, that is a four thing because Mm. that's what I struggle with. In the, I live in Oregon. In the winter, it's so dark and gray and cold here, and I have to force myself to stay in my body and go on walks and just engage my senses because otherwise I will be watching Disney Plus or, you know. Yeah, that's, well, and I go to four, low side of four in stress. So that... Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Anyway, the Enneagram has been huge for that. Well, in the last year, it's been that specific element of the Enneagram. I learned about being disembodied and how important it is that we have bodies and even how that can get minimized when you're a Jesus follower, you know, your spirit gets a lot more attention generally than your body. And so just the idea that, oh, your, our bodies matter and God created a material world for us to live in and gave us bodies and so that's been a fun thing to explore as a four like oh Jesus wants me to walk around outside and touch plants and you know absolutely be in the world in my body so yes it's been huge well thanks for playing we it's it's just um it is perpetuating this idea that we can't guess each other's types. That's why we call it, I can't guess you're any a type. No. <laughs> I like that you can't guess it, you tried. I know, right? Um, Lisa, thank you for being on the show and telling your story so courageously. 
um, your and your family's story. If so, I'm guessing we can just get your book on Amazon or any books anywhere books are sold should yeah. carry your book. Yes, and I just got an audio book deal. So awesome. I'm recording. They're they. They accept, they accepted my voice sample, so I will be recording that hopefully in the next month. Very cool. Okay, and so we can even listen to it on audio at some point. Awesome. Okay. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks for having me. Yep. Yeah.